This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicoast. Today is October 12th, 2023. I'm Scott Bohm. I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we have a smorgasbord of stories that you might have missed this week because obviously the big news is the one that we are very not qualified to talk to very much as neither of us being uh, Jewish or um, Palestinian or foreign policy experts. But our thoughts are definitely with everyone who has been affected by this and everyone who's lost their lives in Israel and in Gaza following the attacks, which are atrocious and terrifying to think about. Yeah, our thoughts are with the victims in this time. So with that, I don't feel appropriate jumping into the Patreon bag, so I'm going to jump right into the stories of the week. We'll start here in British Columbia. The legislature's away this week for Thanksgiving, and so we don't have the, you know, in the House battle of the four leaders, but we do have a few news stories. First off, we have a new healthcare deal with Ottawa. This story kind of took me by surprise because I felt like we just had a healthcare deal signed last year, but this is a uh, new additional funding as part of the $196 billion health accord that Trudeau had announced earlier this year. And this is the first province that has come to a one-on-one deal with Trudeau, as he is seemingly want to do with every federal policy, oh, divide and conquer. Like you said, you remembered another one from uh, not all that long ago. Um, so, uh, so this is $1.2 billion over the next three years. Uh, that accounts for 0.6% of the uh, total health accord funding. So no doubt there will be more uh, later unless Trudeau has just decided to screw over BC, which seems highly unlikely. I think the accord is supposed to cover a decade, is it? Or is it three years? It's, it's a, yeah, it's well, a 10-year plan. So this is $1.2 billion over three years for the first investment in a 10-year plan. Yeah, so like we will probably hear more announcements coming down the pipe. Because, um, yeah, it's a pretty small part of the overall uh, spend on this. So it's a small part of the overall spend in BC. Uh, so from budget 2023, uh, the projected provincial spend uh, during the uh, th- three-year period is about $78.7 billion. So this will add an extra one and a half percent onto it. Not nothing, but you know, don't expect big changes in healthcare to come from this. Yeah, what's kind of novel here is that this healthcare deal isn't just a lump check. This is to do specific things, and there are earmark chunks of this. With BC really focusing on, I guess, two focuses that tie together. Mostly it's about an innovative model of care, in the minister's words, to introduce uh, new programs at 83 acute care sites across the province. And that that 
must be all of them. Like, I know we don't have that many hospitals, and then you can add in the urgent primary care centers, and I guess some clinics are also getting in on this. But if you go for urgent care, I guess you're going to be seeing one of these innovative models where nurses get to spend more time with patients. That sounds good. Don't know yeah, what it means. Particularly because we've seen there's been problems with staffing levels in the, uh, particularly in the interior and outside of the lower mainland. I mean, not that the lower mainland has an overabundance of uh, healthcare workers, but uh, particularly in some of the uh, more rural rural parts, uh, there have been concerns about whether or not uh, facilities can even stay open twenty four seven. The doctors they have on hand so anything that'll help shift the load a little more onto uh nurses may actually help that a bit uh provided these yeah the staff there and the resources to support that but uh yeah anything that helps the staffing levels and uh gets people around the choke points is good the rest of the money so that's about 750 million dollars going towards nursing and this innovative care uh, the rest of the money is going to go to diagnostic care, waitlist, and uh, digital care. So we'll have to see how this gets rolled out. And, you know, I guess we'll be waiting for ten, nine more agreements with the other provinces. And I don't even know if they're doing them directly with the territories at this point. More more announcements and check signings for the federal government coming but while we're waiting for that healthcare funding to roll out, BC is also going to be slowly updating the Police Act. This follows the reforms that were studied by the, you know, commission, the committee, the parliamentary committee to look at this over the last. Well, they looked at it like two years ago now. Started in twenty twenty. Uh, uh, yeah, it's been rolling since then. Uh, it might take till 2026 for the uh, final legislation, or maybe even 2027. Uh, the article mentioned both. Uh, so sounds like even the uh, ministry spokesperson they were quoting was a little unsure on that one. Um, last April, there's a promise that uh, the first legislative changes would be being tabled this fall. Uh, that is now pushed back to the spring of next year. The uh, purported reason for this is to uh, give the government more time to uh, complete consultations with various groups, such as uh, indigenous partners, local governments, police, human rights organizations, and community groups. It's frustrating to watch this get so slow-rolled. Like, I know the NDP can be pretty confident about the next election, but at this point, they're just basically like setting their legislative timetable already, presuming they have a majority government after the next election. Well, I mean, based on where the other parties are, that's uh, a pretty good bet. I mean, governments can be slow. Uh, This one seems to be not terrible, certainly not as terrible as the... uh, feds are at doing things which we will uh touch on in a little bit when it comes to their stuff um but still this is like a pretty long timeline and i mean they have been consulting quite a bit the uh the committee that uh produced the recommendations that are going to be have them taken up on the legislation uh they consulted quite a bit heard from a bunch of people on this bunch of groups so it's not entirely clear what else is going to be learned and 
yeah, it's not the worst thing to uh, take your time, and make sure you get everything right on here. Like, um, you know, we've seen with some of the bail changes that have been uh, walked back a bit that, you know, if you do stuff quickly and without really thinking everything through, there can be some downstream consequence that they need to be fixed afterwards. It's so that's not the worst thing. It's still nevertheless interesting that this is apparently a seven year process to update some legislation. And um, the only other thing on here, this is kind of speculation is I wonder how much of this is the political calculus changing. Um, in 2020, everything was pushing entirely in one direction on this file. And since then, we've seen public safety become a more pressing topic than it was three years ago. Uh, I mean, the, the bail changes that I mentioned, like three years ago, David Eby would not be uh, pushing the uh, federal government to tighten up uh, the bail rules uh, for people west arrested and waiting trial. And he has, the Attorney General of BC has, like, the political calculus is not what it was. And I'm wondering how much of this is the NDP tapping the brakes of it just to give them time to kind of update their plans in relation to that changing political landscape. I don't know. Who knows? Like I said, all I mean, speculation. It, yeah, totally. I mean, like, it's a very complex piece of legislation. And the commission, the committee's report identified both like very like low hanging fruit that needs to be dealt with in terms of oversight and engagement of community and like pie in the sky level. Like we need to tear up our contract with the RCMP and reintroduce a BC provincial police force that looks not radically different, but different than we have before us. Uh, the current contract BC and all the provinces have with the RCMP is in place until March 31st, 2032. Now we can tear that up, but we need to give 24 months notice, two years notice. Um, it could have been done twice or three times in there, uh, it turns out. But like it's, it's still not even clear if they're looking that way. We do know with the Surrey policing debacle that longer term, they at very least wanted to establish a Surrey police force over the local back and forth over whether they wanted RCMP or Surrey police still, still a mess there. They still don't, yeah, they was, still have two, two police forces there. And that was been going on for what? Like that was started with after the 2018, 2018. elections. So yeah, that is on year five right there. And there is still a lot of work to be done. And that's just a single city's police force. The I will say this, it probably could be moving faster if the mayor actually was on board with the change that, or the, yeah, with yeah, the change like, that the province has forced now, but. For sure, but like, also, her predecessor started it, and in four years, was not able to get it done to the point where it was like a decisive done deal. It became a political football for a year until the province basically said, no, we're, we started this, we're going to finish it, but like. It was not obviously past the point of no return uh, after four years. And, you know, that is one city 
in a province that is bigger than many countries and like it's not a quick thing to uh replace an entire entire provincial policing system uh with it if you're also changing not just the uh the governing laws but the actual organization well we'll look forward to a policing bill maybe in spring 2024 if it doesn't get and delayed more again. much later than that one thing the government has been moving on is adding more voices and faces to the board of the BC Housing Corporation. Uh, specifically, they have added Robert Brown. I'm going to pronounce Nicole Halbauser's traditional name wrong, but Ekstam Hanak, uh, Jackie Cassandy, and Yute Lee to the board. Uh, these four people bring a real interesting diversity of background and experience. I think you and I are only familiar with Lee, who uh, does the stories have, about here YouTube videos. I have, I think, run into Robert Brown at some like event somewhere in uh, Vancouver related to housing at one point, and like he's been involved with, uh, or he founded Catalyst Community Development, so nonprofit developer and whatnot. But yeah, only two of the people I'm familiar with on here uh prior to uh this announcement uh Ute is an interesting uh choice here because well he has a uh you know, quite a bit of knowledge about housing he's uh worked for uh cbc as well as producing his own uh material for uh youtube as uh stories about here um he's not coming into this with a it's with a background in the building or operations of housing, uh, which yeah, makes an interesting choice. Not a bad one, but an interesting one. Yeah, he's he's not a developer, but he's someone with a passion for urban planning, which is pretty cool. And I think a lot of our listeners, if you haven't watched the Stories About Here videos, you will like them if you're the kind of person who likes our content. Uh, Hanak is a member of the Simshian uh, nation, uh, who has also been an interim director at the Terrace Women's Resource Center. So someone from Northern British Columbia, someone who's Indigenous. And Cassandi has corporate experience, in including BC Lottery Commission Corporation, BC Ferries, and uh, founded the Black Entrepreneurs and Businesses of Canada Society. So, you know, an interesting mix of people with backgrounds that I think will help the organization as it is undoubtedly going to be tasked with building much more housing, especially for low-income communities in the province. Let's go to our national government. We talked, I think it was last week, maybe it was two weeks ago now when the actual deal was struck. I feel like we've talked about this a few yeah, times. Yeah, we talked about Trudeau reaching the agreement with the grocery CEOs that, you know, they'd seen the, sh the flyers and the prices will be lower by Thanksgiving and for several months after because they have promised to enact discounts and price freezes. And being responsible media that they were, uh, Canadian press called up the five major grocery companies and said, is that true? Are you committed to 
keeping your prices low and what exactly have you promised to do? Uh, in response, Metro told them they weren't going to comment and none of the others answered. That's not true. Walmart got back with a written statement that they have everyday low prices that you can always find at Walmart. They, they responded with an ad. It's something, I guess. Um, uh, when asked by reporters how Canadians would know that uh, these were actually price cuts and not just, you know, the same ads they run every week about, you know, such and such is on sale, uh, Champagne said he didn't want to disclose what each company's pledged to do. So we're just kind of left guessing, but uh, each sort doesn't seem like there's a uh, massive decrease in grocery prices, you know, dropping 10% across the board or anything. And this is a uh, government that said, oh, by God, we're going to get uh, grocery prices down ahead of Thanksgiving. And, well, that has uh, come and passed with uh, not much to show for it, which is kind of what you would expect for something that was political theater more than serious policy yeah i i find this the headline here that the grocers won't confirm discounts and price freezes to just be funny like i get though why the story is what it is there's you know business interests they're not going to say oh we actually reduced these prices when they probably didn't explicitly talk to each other in making the deal with the government if they each presented their own plan so there is a business interest in not disclosing that. And part of their plan with the government was probably guaranteed confidentiality so that the government will also not disclose those. And I believe the federal ATIP legislation works like BCFOI, where business interests can be exempted from disclosure. So we may never know what these deals were. Um, Hopefully we can at least ATIP what the government is using as their internal metrics to measure these. Yeah, and so like we're kind of left wondering what the effect is, and I, I haven't actually looked, but I imagine there has to be some nerd out there who has built a like database of prices of staples and can compare the grocery stores and show that off, and we should be able to see in a couple weeks what has happened. Now, of course. Oh, Maybe some of these companies were already going to freeze their prices anyway towards the year end, as some of them have done, like Loblaws we've talked about, I think, in the last episode. But that's the evidence we would need right now. Well, I always wait till the uh, CPI numbers come out from uh, StatsCan on that one. Speaking of nerds, Statistics Canada, but yes. In other industry hilarity, let's come back to C18 and the battle between the news media lobby group and now Google. Uh, Google has said they are unsatisfied with the regulations being proposed around C18 and will still plan to remove all news from Google by the end of the year, I believe, is when they set a deadline. It's December 19th cool. is when Bill takes effect. Uh, and so now the news media has realized that would be much worse than not being on Facebook because, you know, I, I like to Google things to find out what's happening in the world or use my like Android phones news now list to see the headlines uh, yeah, you don't and have not to, like, being able to do that. V- would, yeah, you don't want to have to like log into a VPN every time you want to check the news. Or use Bing. 
Of course, if everyone uses Bing, Bing would then fall under this and they would take the news. It depends off. if do they advertise? That's the issue. I think um, they have ads. I am like vaguely aware. You know what they do because um or at least they pay for product placement because on like TV and movies, more than zero people use Bing in those and that's just not the true in real life. So the news media has said, yeah, we sh- the government should try to do everything it can to placate Google so they don't lose access and also that they actually get the money out of Google. That was the point of this whole fee- bill. I mean, Fiasco this is of a bill. just embarrassing for them. Like, you know, they cast Google as the enemy in this. Um, the government uh, at one point, like Trudeau went as far as to... Uh, compare standing up for uh or standing up for news and journalism in canada to you know what canada fought for in the 1940s uh on this like that was a bit of a reach for sure and for all the heated rhetoric now the the main organized lobbying organization pushing for this is like you know what the other side kind of had a point can we uh do we maybe roll this back a little bit? Turns out they're uh, not backing down like we said they would. It's embarrassing. Like the uh, the media has not covered themselves in glory uh, in the past year on this, and this is really just the latest example of that, and perhaps the uh, most embarrassing one too. I am curious to see if the Heritage Ministry. Uh, takes this advice on board and amends the regulations and how that moves forward. Uh, Maybe? I don't know. It's just a terrible, like, standoff that is kind of screwing over everyone. Yeah, it's... At this point. It's bad. The problem is, like, when, um, you know, the Prime Minister comes out and says that you know, not backing down on this bill is, you know, an important thing to do for the future of democracy. Like, you can't exactly then just back down. Like, the liberals have kind of painted themselves into a rhetorical corner on this, where um, after ramping the rhetoric up to 11, like, there's really no way to kind of walk this back and as we'll talk about in a bit, like this is a government that is imaged focused to a fault, and I can't see them uh, wanting to take the image hit on this. Like they may actually so, prefer to uh, fight it out and try to continue to paint uh, Google as the bad guy, even as uh, news media disappears off uh, off of it uh, in a few months' time. Google has not said they want C18 repealed. They complained about what was included in the bill and they wished it was amended significantly before passage. But, you know, they have said there are specific things they're looking for in the regulations that haven't been met yet. And so there is a path forward here where the government can keep its bill, Google can be happy, and the news media gets their money that they want, um, but it will require some back down from the government that sets some floors and 
you know, set the amount of money that they could be pulling from this at uh, indeterminate levels, let's say. Well, I mean, the indeterminate level is kind of the problem. The Google wants a determinate level and not so much a floor as a ceiling on this. Um, but yeah, like there's there's rooms to fit it in the regulations and some of that stuff. Um, that may or may not solve Google's concern. Like they may want to actually see it in the legislation before they uh, go on that one or agree to change course on that. Oh, we'll see, but either way, like it's going to work, get a little bit of egg on the government's face, and I'm not sure if they're uh, willing to take any of that. So, oh, we'll see. You know what they could do is they could extend the implementation of this bill for two years, as they have just done for their assault-style firearm amnesty buyback program, uh, is now continuing... It won't actually start the buyback program until October 30th, 2025, rather than the end of this month. Yeah, so uh, second item on the uh, the pod where uh, something started in 2020 isn't getting done in the time frame. Uh, promise. So, yeah, this came after the uh, wake of the uh, 2020 Nova Scotia shooting. Um, we talked about the uh, Mass Casualty Commission a few times here. Uh, one of the things they uh, did in the uh, immediate aftermath of that was uh, through an order in council ban what they said was 1500 models in variants. It was 10 and a, bu- and a bunch of sub-variants of it, like 10 basic fire firearms and all their variants um, including the uh, AR-15 and uh, they're, they promised to implement a buyback program on that. Uh, and now, turns out they're not able to do it in the time they wanted to. And it's going to be October 30th, 2025. So, two things jump out at me on this. One is, how hard is it to set up a program where people go to a police station and hand in a firearm and get money in exchange? Like, this cannot be complicated if there's one thing the government is good at and they are not good at much these days it is cutting checks like this should not be a hard problem to solve um and then the other thing is october 2025 is the uh net scheduled federal election it's i honestly can't tell if this is cynical or not on one hand, if it is a case of like trying to uh, plant a landmine to try and trip up the conservatives on guns, doing it this far out just puts a big flag on it that uh, gives anyone uh, on the other side a chance to figure out a strategy and avoid. On the other hand, eh, who knows? This is a government that I could see absolutely trying to do that or trying to make a big or setting this up to make a big announcement in say september 2025 of we're now implementing this uh program to get uh assault style firearms off the streets yeah i mean is it cynical or confident to... is, i guess my question it, yeah and it's another one of those ones that 
without some really clever a tips or leaks we'll probably never know i was trying to look back at some of the polling and buyback programs i've there was one poll that showed they were fairly popular like two-thirds support another one from angus reed shows it's kind of divided with like equal numbers supporting and opposing at almost similar realms although the supporters are more likely to be support and the opposers are more likely to be strongly opposed um and that'll vary like regionally with rural areas being more supportive than uh, uh, more more opposed to it than urban areas for example uh i really don't want to fight an election on guns but the liberals like doing it, I guess, and they figure they have some people who still like them for that. What I actually found really interesting in this story is a related story that we have in here from the Ottawa Citizen, where they found that the reason it's a mandatory buyback program was because a couple groups in Quebec uh, that were set to host Quebec, um, that that were set to host Justin Trudeau at a commemoration of the 1989 mass shooting at a Cole Polytechnique. Uh, they said, you're not coming if you don't make this mandatory. We're going to disinvite you. And they scrambled internally and decided to change the policy in response to that pressure from uh, the Polysysuivant group, which is damn fine advocacy for that organization i will say or at least effective <laughs> it's effective yeah that's uh for sure i mean it's a little embarrassing for the uh pmo to show they can be uh pushed around that easily on just like one dis invitation gets them to uh change policy on something that uh you can't argue with the effectiveness of it. On the other hand, I don't know, maybe it's not like the greatest thing that we're, uh, as a country, basing our policy off uh, whether or not uh, the PM would feel embarrassed by not getting an invite to a place. I mean, a lot of policy in this country and most democracies can get influenced like this, Scott. I hate to tell you, <laughs> a small, a small vocal group can do a lot more than like a large like half caris group yeah no that's definitely true it's just one of those like you see the sausage being made here in a way that uh feels pretty distant from the uh theoretical this is how things should work idea of policy making the speaking of the sausage getting made let's go to Matt Gurney's scoop in the line on how we uh, had operational embassies in Israel embassies. over the long weekend when many Canadians living in Israel undoubtedly wanted to access embassy services to get the fuck out of there. Yeah, so um, can they, I think we can presume the listeners have a general sense of the situation uh there so to jump into uh what happened when people tried to reach the embassy there were apparently difficulties contacting uh the embassy um 
contemporaneously with that, I definitely saw stuff flowing around on social media about people not being able to uh, reach the embassy. And, you know, it was a long weekend. Um, the Canadian embassy was following Canadian statutory holidays, was not open, did not have staff um, around there. Entirely understandable. Like, no one saw this coming, expected it there. Um, embassy w- was not available for the stuff. That ended up triggering some uh, questions about how Canadians can reach the uh, embassy, whether or not it was open to service uh, Canadians. Government puts out a statement saying, basically, uh, contrary to what you've heard, uh, our mission remains operational and we're here to help Canadians. Um, I'll spare you the long, surprisingly long narrative bits on the back and forth there, but uh, through some investigative journalism, uh, journey turns up that uh, it was closed and the government was basically phrasing operational to um, obscure the fact that the actual embassy in Tel Aviv was not open and that uh, the consular services were being uh, done out of Ottawa. And like, (sighs) that's fine that it was being done out of Ottawa. There's no real concern. The the main thing here is that the spin was interesting on this and kind of the main point of contention on all of this is the embassy's not open. Just say the embassy's not open. Don't imply through clever word choice that it is in fact open when really you're using other resources not located in the country to provide the services you're providing. Um, in the and grand like scheme of this... things, this is a pretty small deal uh, compared to the backdrop of what's going on. Um, on the other hand, like when you're in a crisis, you want the government's communication to be as direct and clear and as truthful as possible. And as far as we know, there was no harm that came out of this. Um, you know, a bunch of people on Twitter got their partisan jabs in one way or the other. Um, but the actual like on the ground costs of this were as far as we can tell nil, but you know, it is not out of the realm of possibility that someone would have tried to go up to the mission uh, in Israel, trying to uh, get services and not be able to um, thinking that based on what they'd seen the government say that, uh, that was in fact uh, a real possibility and it's small, but in a crisis, you don't want to be doubting what the government's communicating. And that's, I think ultimately the harm here is that uh, the government by doing this now has undermined their credit, the credibility of their communications in future crises. And that could potentially be a challenge uh, going forward, and especially for something as small and inconsequential as whether or not they had staff immediately on hand and could run uh, 
an embassy all over the weekend and you know no one would have faulted them if they didn't have staff it was a long weekend nobody expected the situation to arise a couple days of hey sorry we don't have a staff immediately on hand for this people were on leave and they're now sheltering in place we'll get this opened up as soon as possible in the meantime uh you can get the services you need remotely through ottawa would have been entirely fine nobody would have blamed the government for that and yet they still chose to spin it scott that doesn't fit in a tweet but i mean <laughs> like the the bigger issue is that this is against the backdrop of canada not having the logistical capacity seemingly to get Canadians who wanted to flee out. And we are only, I think, today getting the first flight of Canadians out of Israel, and that was privately organized with like the formal ones coming out. No, I believe the, by the end of this week. Uh the first uh Canadian government flight uh left today and touched down in Greece. Um the But we're recording Thursday. Yes. And that's a long time since Saturday. Yeah, the previous day, um, a privately organized flight from, uh, I believe it was an airport near Haifa, um, to Cyprus was organized uh, by private citizens because they were frustrated they couldn't get uh, a Canadian government flight out of the uh, conflict zone. And I threw this in here just because I saw it as a very related headline. Uh, apparently, we are also have not evacuated two-thirds of the diplomats that we've been told to get out of India by the deadline the Modi government gave us to get them out. That's uh, so, not great. And, like, like if you get these are bad, bad headlines on their own, but they also follow, like our failures to get people out of Afghanistan when the Taliban took over Kandahar. They follow our failures and difficulties getting people out of Ukraine when Russia invaded. Uh, and we can go back further. Yeah, I mean, we were chatting about this in the uh, Patreon Slack a bit, um, but a couple of people uh, posted some of these stories, and like it brought back memories of watching a previous conflict, which I think was, uh, I want to say the 2006 uh Israel-Hezbollah war uh, that impacted Israel and uh, Lebanon. And yeah, there were the same question, concerns about how come the government is so slow in getting people out of their... Um, there are also questions about like you know, how ready the government should be for citizens who are, are long-term residents of uh, other countries. But, like, this has been an ongoing question for at least a decade and a half since that flared up. There was, like I said, Afghanistan. Um, crazily enough, the uh, Global Affairs actually put up a plaque commemorating their work on the Afghanistan evacuation, which, yeah, I'm not sure there's a, should be a trophy handed out on that one, uh, considering how many people... They, we they were people. proud they got some people out that time. I mean, this was a... Um, we turned people away at the airport because the uh, we ran out of seatbelts on the planes. Um, and that's uh, in contrast to what, say, the Americans were doing, where like, if you could fit a person in any space, you were fitting them in that space. Um, they, they wouldn't want to violate. 
Afghanistan air transat con- or air transport controls. Well, I'm pretty sure getting that, out yeah. of there. But yeah, <laughs> the like, non-existent ones while the government was collapsed. Well, you know, who knows what uh, would happen if uh, Transport Canada decided to find the RCAF or uh, you know letting a couple of refugees fly without a seatbelt so they wouldn't get shot. Um, yeah. Anyway, it's uh, it's a disaster. It's bad. Like we have a bunch of aircraft that we pay money to maintain to train people to fly. How come that we can't? How come it takes a better part of a week to get them to get an aircraft in the country to get people out? And how come Canadians have to charter a plane rather than have the government uh, shop there? And we're talking like a short hop across uh, the northeast during uh, Mediterranean to uh, to NATO air bases. Like it is not hard to do logistically, and yet somehow we managed to uh, not get that done. Yeah, we have utterly failed to develop a breaking case of glass, which apparently needs to be broken quite frequently standard operating procedure for how to do this. Like, I get there are unique situations in each of these cases that make it logistically difficult to have, like, a one, you know, follow these six steps to get your citizens out. But well, I mean, like- there's you, you need a plane, and you need an airport, and you need a list of people. And so some of it is fairly standard, I think. But I'm not, I'm not an expert in this. I don't work for Global Affairs Canada. But the people who that do should, yeah, there's focus on that. There are, yeah, people who, in theory, should be getting paid to figure out to know where a region, what a region's like, where the airports are, know where our planes are, and how to get them there. And yeah, you know, this should be the sort of thing that comes together, you know, matter of hours, a day or two at most, not. Uh, Thursday for a crisis that started Saturday. It's just disappointing. You can lead into the next. We uh, mentioned off the top that we're not going to dive into a lot of the stuff around what's happening uh, around Israel and Palestine at the moment. Um, Because, like I said, we're not experts uh, at this. Uh, I did want to touch on more what's happened at home here on this um i did want to touch on the uh domestic canadian aspect um related to the uh rallies we saw in the country um earlier in this case the uh sir we're going with uh has the uh, prime minister coming out uh earlier this week uh to condemn the demonstrations that uh happened across uh, Canada following on the uh, attack in Israel over the weekend. Um, I'm uh, struggling a bit with what to say here. It's uh, It's been a tough week, uh, for sure. Um, That's, I think, the, the core of it, right? There's so many strong feelings on so many sides and people are just looking for ways to express that and one of the things we saw happen is 
these initial protests right after, or, you know, in the 48 hours after the attack. I forget the exact time of the attack. That was Saturday. The, and the, Saturday, or the attack happened on, well, uh, in terms of our time zone, um, as I was going to bed Friday night, right. um, the first stuff was starting to pop up um, on there. Um, it happened Saturday there, but it was Friday night in our time zone. Um, and over the next couple days, the uh, full scale and nature of the attack and even some, and apparently even the attack continued with uh, Israel only finally securing all of the uh, attack communities. I believe it was yesterday or the day before, but it took a few days of time to uh, fully secure um, the areas that had been attacked. Um, but shortly afterwards, um, or rallies had started to be organized for Sunday and Monday in Canada, um, on this and any attack, um, of this scale is, is a tough thing to watch the the details coming out of being, um, incredibly disconcerting to um hear about the uh scale and nature of the atrocities um this is as of recording the death toll from the attack has exceeded 1300 um making it the largest um uh, the largest attack and uh, killing of Jewish people since the end of the Holocaust. Like it's, it is hard to understate how big this is, um, both in terms of proportionality. Um, the comparison I saw was that if on a per capita basis, this has happened in Canada, there would have been more than 3,000 uh, killed and that was a few days ago, the increased death tolls that have come in since. It would probably be uh, significant more than that. Um, anyway, those were tough to watch, but um, what followed, I think, is... Um, like I'm starting forwards here a bit, but it, it's not just... It, it's tough in a different way. And like this past week has been, I think, the most disorienting and unsettling i have felt uh since probably march of 2020 uh it's the attack was bad enough but watching kind of the follow-on reaction has been particularly disconcerting um on this and the rallies we saw in canada uh, as well as some of the other uh, statements that have been put out uh, by various people and organizations uh, have, I think, has driven this home in a way that uh, has just been incredibly tough to watch. I So to put this in context, the... Rallies that were held in Vancouver, Toronto, and a few others uh, were 
pro-Hamas rallies. The organizers in their literature uh, described them as or described the situation about how the resistance had taken hostages and that these rallies were were to quote uplift and honor the resistance and our martyrs. So the resistance directly identified in the literature on this with Hamas unequivocally and that the rallies were to honor and uh, uplift them. Cannot be any clearer. This is a pro-Hamas rally. This was a rally in support of a 21st century pogrom. And watching those pop up uh, across Canada has been um, a very tough... I keep using the word tough. I feel like... I'm struggling for words a bit on this one, but um, I thought, like, no matter what else, like, no matter our differences, no matter our um, disagreements on stuff, there were there were lines that just collectively we would not cross. There was, at the very least, a consensus on you don't celebrate terrorism, you don't celebrate um, a genocidal mass murdering event on this and that that is not what we actually saw on this the so i know people who ended up attending rallies and i think Cadillac had a good coverage of this right he talked in the shortcuts today jesse did a breakdown on the rallies and you know covers the facts that you laid out that yes, the organizers are bad people who put these in frames of Hamas. What I think most people who like, I don't, you can't know the hearts of everyone who is there, but I feel like what I saw people going who went to them for was not a celebration of Hamas in any way, but they wanted to say, we still stand with Palestine, not Hamas. And that's why, for the most part, it was almost all Palestinian flags there. And when the speeches were heard, and Jesse Brown, a you know a Jewish man himself, I'll say, did try to figure out, you know, was hate speech delivered at these? Were these anti like overtly anti-Semitic rallies? In the end, it seems like there's not strong evidence. Now, was the purpose of them that? Probably yes. It seems pretty clear from that. Did the people who go out agree with that? It's not as clearly defined. And the reason I think I saw so many people who I know and respect go to these rallies is because they knew what would come next. And it's what we've seen come next from the Israeli state, which is 1,500 people have been killed in Gaza, including many more children. Gaza has now been put under a siege where they have shut off electricity and cut food and water. These are like this is responding to terrorism with war crimes and ethnic cleansing and it's being caused and it's all like it's not caused but there's like a not justifiable but un almost understandable like level of provocation to trigger this that's not to justify it in any way you can't justify the murders that we saw happen by Hamas and the terrorism and the killings but you can 
see the provocations from the conditions that we've just been ignoring, frankly, as a society and been unable to condemn how Israel has treated Palestinians and the people of Gaza for years. I am. And that's where the frustration and the willingness to stand up and fly a a Palestinian flag by so many people was. It wasn't that people were out there flying Palestinian flag because they're like, yeah, I'm so glad Jews are dead. No, it's because they said, I don't want more violence is what I heard from most people that I followed on this. And even in the statements I saw described as anti-Semitic, they said at the end, the solution here is peace. The, um, I'm not entirely sure if I can agree with that characterization of the rallies. Like, if you're going to a terrorism rally, like, maybe you didn't know, but, like, that information has now been out there, and there is an incredible amount of hurt uh, that those caused to the the Jewish community on that, to see the slaughter of their fellow uh, community members being celebrated in the streets and not universally condemned. Um, We saw uh, people in various organizational capacities and various um, um, institutional roles say a lot of incredibly anti-Semitic stuff, saying stuff that celebrated the attacks. Um, I'm thinking particularly of... uh, QPs, both their Ontario president as well as one of their locals, put out uh, stuff celebrating the resistance at a time when uh, the bodies were still being collected and buried. And, like, it is absolutely true that it is not inherently anti Semitic to uh, support the Palestinian cause or be critical of Israel. What I have seen from this week tells me that there is, if it's not inherent to it, and there's no reason from first principles to think that it would be on there, the actual movement as constituted has a big anti-Semitism problem that it needs to address in a in a big way, because what we saw today was, or this past week was utterly unacceptable. Like it is clearly there is a level of anti-Semitism in this country that I didn't think existed. I thought I knew it was, there was some, but to see rally after rally across the country to see um, union leaders, to see university uh, professors um, make statements in support of the people that committed the largest atrocity against Jews since the end of the Holocaust. is like, It is... Th- there was a prevalence to that that I did not think existed in Canada. And it's, I don't know. Like, I feel like, like a cartoon character when 
they think they're on solid ground and look under them and find out that uh, the foundation they thought they were on just isn't there. And that's how I feel about a large part of Canada right now. I would, when there have been past hate incidents in Canada, like everyone came out and condemned that. There was no safe space, or there was no waffling on that. Um, and thankfully, we haven't seen that from uh, politicians. There's been a remarkable unity on this in a way that I'm pretty glad to see, like other than, you know, a couple backbenchers in various provincial parliaments, it's not been a question. So let's be clear. QP starts their statement with, we are horrified by the Hamas attack so, on Israel. I'm not... And then they talk about the retribution. I was actually thinking of what uh, the uh, QP local yeah, from the, uh, that reps McMaster... Yeah, I don't care about randoms. Well, Those there, are um, people say things in this height well, of feelings. Also the like, president, Fred If we go to Haaretz... Uh, the presi president of Ontario, QP... Uh, put out a Thanksgiving message thanking the uh, resistance on this. Like, that is just gross and despicable to put out a, a message being thankful of Hamas. And, like, this is not some... He doesn't say Hamas. Like, he if, said, like... If the resistance is the ones that just did this massacre... That is equivalent to Hamas to like do it in the immediate aftermath of this in that context where that is like the clear reference point that anyone reading this will uh, see that as in reference to like it is it is a clear endorsement of of what happened. And yeah, QP put out a statement that, you know, condemned the atrocity several days later. But they, Fred Hondon. That statement I read from was three days ago. But like, let my, my point, sir. There's also a, like, one of the biggest critics of the Israeli government was Haaretz. Just on. The Jewish newspaper. Like, we can. Like that, the QP statement they eventually put out and it, the president did not apologize, did not, um, you know, resign, has not been fired on this. Like. Their ba the basic uh, thrust of the statement is, yeah, the attack was bad, but we're not actually going to apologize for the things that people in leadership positions in our organization said or ref understand that we have caused significant hurt with these uh, statements. Like, they basically tries to try to gaslight people into thinking it didn't happen, but they don't actually take ownership of it and apologize for it or take appropriate action afterwards and like we we were both i think pretty upset to see about what happened a couple weeks ago with the uh nazi that got recognized in parliament but like at least in that case everybody involved realized they fucked up they apologized for it and the person who did it lost their job and i mean they didn't all apologize they all realized it was bad but we got an apology from Trudeau and Rhoda, I believe, was it. 
There were quite a few that came out. I'm sure there were other individual apologies, but I know, for example, Pierre Polyev never explicitly apologized. Yeah, like everybody realized it was a bad thing. He did say it was bad, though, at least. There was an appropriate amount of shame and embarrassment on it, and I am just not seeing that here. Anyway, it's... um, It has been a real tough week, and like... I... It's... It's a good week to not be on Twitter, I will say, since I haven't been there very much other than to like check DMs occasionally or to read something someone else sends me if I need to see the whole thread. But like from, you know, the discussion on Canada land about misinformation and just how fast claims flew, some of them true, some of them like third hand hearsay that might be true, but we don't know because things just happened and so verification takes long and a lot was false because people just recirculated old videos and it's now a website that is filled with oh it's definitely gone downhill for just sure. the worst um, yeah on there so um anyway everyone delete your twitter accounts that would help yeah anyway it's um like i said it's been a week that has things shaking me more than any time since at least uh March of 2020, and yeah, I'm I'm just watching this from the sidelines. Like it's, I can only imagine what it's like for uh, the Jewish community to to be dealing with this. But uh, or the Palestinian community who is looking at their right. family members so, face yeah. possible annihilation because of the acts of a small number okay. of extremists in their midst. There was not a pro. Right, there was not There's a so much focus. Cleansing you can't for, lose sight of that in Canada. Like, yeah, it. Sorry, um, it's there. There's concerns for sure. Uh, but one could say real. that and like, the other part of this is just watching with a, a sense of dread about what's going to be coming, uh, and well, what's already started and what will be coming in the coming days in Gaza, and it's. And I think that's what gives a lot of people pause from giving uncritical support to Israel at this point. You know, we can support the people and the civilians who are being affected on both sides here, but, you know, unabashedly cheering for Israel makes me uncomfortable because of the government that's in power there. Yeah, uncritical, like, like clear, like, we should be unequivalent on this. There's a right to defend themselves, uh, but that should not be construed as a nothing is off the table because they very much need to adhere to uh, the rules of war and international law on this, for sure. Um, If they were adhering to the rules of international law, Palestine would be far more free than it has been. Is part of the problem here. That's why the feelings are so hot, Scott. You need to get out of a bubble and read a little bit more to fully appreciate that, I think. I, I'm a, I'm aware of the I'm I'm aware of the context. Like, I I don't need a lecture on. But that, that is where the but, um, perspectives that you are so shaken by are coming yeah. from is the frustration with that context and the lack of movement on that. Okay, but like I I, I want to be unequivocal here. Like there is no perspective that in any way justifies what happened. Or that makes it okay in any way to have a pro-pogrom rally 
on the steps of the Vancouver Art Gallery or in Nathan Phillips Square or anything. Like, this is... But that's not why people were there, and no one has said, except for, like... It was a pro-Hamas rally. Like, if you show up to a Nazi rally and you didn't check the literature on it and you see people hanging banners saying, talking about how great the resistance is after the resistance just killed a bunch of people, like, you maybe want to take a look here and see what you're actually cheering for. Like, I I entirely understand why people would be... um, supportive of the Palestinian cause and why people would be concerned about um, what happened here and what was going to happen. And if this had been a um, a solemn uh, gathering to express the concern about the lives that were going to be, that had been impacted and were going to be impacted uh in the coming days when the israeli military response hit i would understand that and i would have i would have had very little to say about that on there but that was not the rally we got and that is what has so shaken me on this what no you weren't there you weren't there though right we saw what they said they wanted to do in advance but what we read from I mean, the recording. I saw, I saw videos. Uh, okay, so I, I saw videos um, from the rally of people chanting um, from the river to the sea, which is a call to ethnically cleanse Israel. I saw photos of banners uh, stating the resistance rises uh, being flown at the celebration. And. Yeah, most people carrying stuff there were carrying, um, you know, Palestinian flags. Nothing wrong with that. Um, statements generally supportive of Palestine. Nothing wrong with that. But the the parts that were celebratory of what should be beyond the pale, that still happened. And like no amount of you got to understand where people are coming from makes that okay. No, that's wrong. But I, and I share that view, but I'm saying not everyone who showed up at that rally agreed with that. And yes, they were mistaken and confused as to who organized it. Sometimes these things just spontaneously come together because it's a raw moment. And so... I feel like we should not be very forgiving or at least not offer a huge amount of benefit of the doubt to the pro-genocide rally that happened. Like, I think we're just rehashing ground at this point, and I want to cut it off. Yeah, I, I think it's probably good to move on, for sure. Um, the, frankly. Just like the CBC has killed the long dash time signal that happens at the same time every day so anyone who sets their watch to that my my dad is going to be heartbroken at that news every day checks his watch uh against that or the uh the clots around him so uh yeah i mean technology moves on but uh it's an end of an era for sure signal the beginning of the long dash indicates exactly 10 o'clock pacific daylight saving time
And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.